Well, if you'll take your Bible and let's turn to uh, James chapter 4, and uh, I want to say a big thank you to Matt Hupp, who has been leading us in worship. And uh, Matt will be here with us again next Sunday morning, so uh, we're looking forward to that time together. All right, James chapter 4, and while you're turning there, if you're a guest with us for the first time, we want to welcome you. Glad that you're here. Uh, there is a bulletin I hope you received when you came into the auditorium, and there is a connection card on the end if you'll take a moment to fill that out with as much information as you feel comfortable giving us, and then you can drop that in the uh, basket at the exit door, and there is a gift for you on your way out. There's also a um, message note guide that if you want to pull that out as we move through these verses as we come to James chapter 4 in this series called Uncommon Faith. Uncommon Faith. So James is challenging us uh, to live a life of faith, uh, a faith that's not just, uh, doesn't just talk a good talk, but walks a good walk, right? So he's, he's like, I'm, I'm not all about the chatter about your faith. What I want to know is what are you doing about it? How are you living it out? How are you trusting God in your life? Now, when we come to chapter 4, he, he really starts... I mean, he's already been hitting us hard, but he gets a little more aggressive. So uh, here's what he says. Verse 1, chapter 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? I want you to circle that phrase, among you. It's okay to mark in your Bible, all right? I'm giving you permission. Uh, Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? So you want to circle within you. There's a contrast. Among you, within you. Uh, You want something, uh, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight, you do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us in and envies intensely, but he gives us more grace. That's why Scripture says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you who are, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, I want to start off this morning with a little game, okay? So you need a partner for this game. If, if you're not sitting near someone, uh, you may want to grab somebody or, uh, or you can just listen. Uh, all throughout our lives, um, there are difficult choices that we have to make. And sometimes the choice we have to make is not literally, uh, well, this is a great, the great choice and this is going to be a bad choice. But sometimes it's just uh, something that we have to choose uh, in life that, is there's two options, and you're, it may be difficult for you to choose between the two options. So uh, here's the test. So here's your options, and this is a game that, you know, kids play, um, you know, trying to, especially when you're traveling with children, you want to try to keep them occupied. So here's, here's the question. Would you rather, would you rather find $10 million 
or true love? Or true love. Now, if you're sitting next to your spouse, this is an easy one, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's easy. Ten million. Somebody record that so I can play that back for Angie. Uh, Phil says he's weighed in on the ten million. Uh, here's another question number two. Would you rather win a million dollars or have your friend win ten million dollars? Would you rather win a million or have your friend win ten million? Now, if you're sitting next to your friend, this is an easy one. Um, it may get progressively more difficult. So here's, here's, here's one's really tough. Um, sandpaper as toilet paper or hot sauce as eye drops. So which one would you rather? <laughs> so every day of our lives, what do we have to do? We have to make decisions, right? And some decisions may seem very e easy for us. Some of them may be more complex and more difficult. So James has been talking to us about uh, foolish wisdom versus godly wisdom. And really, he, he's, he's continuing to unpack uh, that mindset of, you know, every day we make choices in our lives and we can uh, choose to um, follow the wisdom of the world or we can choose to follow the wisdom of God. But you're going to make a choice and you're going to follow one or the other. And some of those decisions may be very clear cut for you. Some of the decisions may not be. They may be muddied by the waters and uh, the gray areas and you're really not sure which way to go or what you should choose or decide. And so James is challenging us uh, in chapter uh, 3, at the end of the chapter, to walk in wisdom rather than to walk in foolishness. That we always want to, we want to make the choice of what's the wise thing that God would have us to do. So one of the questions you may ask yourself when you're facing a decision, you're really not sure which way to go. You may want to say something like, listen, in, in light of my past experiences and my present circumstances and my future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing to do? And it might be that the Bible is very clear cut on what you should or should not do, but maybe it just, there are principles out of God's word that's speaking into the area of gray areas, but you always want to keep that thought in mind. I, you know, if I want to live God's way, if I don't want to make choices that are is in keeping with God's wisdom, the reason why I want to do this is because every choice I make is putting my feet on a path and every path has a destination. So you want to make the wisest choice to put your feet on the path that God has selected that it's going to take you to the best destination possible. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, our call is to follow what the Bible calls the road less traveled. You recall that James parallels a lot of Jesus' teaching all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And you'll recall that towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talked about a broad road and a narrow road. What did he say about the broad road? A lot of people find that road. A lot of people are walking that road. But the narrow road, a few are walking on it. Few find it. The broad road is speaking of the world's wisdom. Uh, the narrow road is speaking of God's wisdom. So we want to be, as followers of Jesus Christ, walking on that narrow path, choosing the narrow path. But we are called, uh, as followers, to seek out God's wisdom. Now, the problem is... Um, the problem is wisdom, God's wisdom, sometimes can seem counterintuitive to us. In other words, I'm faced with a decision, and in my heart, I'm thinking, you know, God's way, it just doesn't seem right. It just doesn't feel right. It just doesn't, I just don't think this is the right way or the right decision for me at this moment in my life. And so we choose to 
uh, we choose to bypass God's wisdom, and may we choose, maybe we choose to walk and follow the path of foolishness. So um, James challenges us with really, again, two options. World's wisdom which is false, God's wisdom, which is absolutely true wisdom. So why? People say to me, well, well Greg, this is a no-brainer for me. I mean, I'm, of course I'm going to follow God's word. Of course I'm going to walk in God's wisdom. Of course I'm going to choose the narrow road. Oh, really? Because that's not what James says here in chapter 4. In fact, what James does, he challenges us and says, you know what? I've kind of noticed some things, and what I've noticed is you're not choosing the wise path. You're not choosing the wisdom of God. You're choosing the, the broad path, the foolishness of the world's wisdom and values and philosophies. And as a result of that, it's causing all kinds of conflict in your life. If you really want a, a litmus test as to whether or not you're walking in the wisdom of God or the wisdom of the world, all you got to do is look at the conflict in your life because it is an indicator of which pathway you're walking. And so James really kind of challenges us, and really this is the natural bent of our hearts, right? Because here's what he says coming out of the gate. Here's why you have quarrels and fights among you, right? He says, they come from your desires that battle within you. Well, what desire is battling within me? He just spells that out and says, you want something, but you don't get it. And if I want something and I don't get it, then I'm going to have a problem with you. Now, this can be in my relationship with God. I can come to God and say in prayer, God, you know, I, I really want this. I really desire this. And you tell me in your word, Psalm 37, that you give me the desires of my heart. And God, this is what I really want. And God's looking at our heart and he's saying, well, you know, the really reason you're really asking for this is because you, it's out of selfish motives. You just want what you want to spend it on your own selfish pleasures. And therefore, I'm going to stamp a no on that. And God comes back and just to our spirit says, you know what, this is not going to happen. And what happens to us? We just say, okay, God, you know, I'm surrendering to your will. Uh, whatever it is you want, God, that's the way I'm going to go. That's the, what, the path I'm going to follow. No, inside of us, there's this war going on, this battle that says, but this is what I want, and I really want it bad, and I really think this is what's best for me. And so now we, we kind of get in, in, in an argumentative war with God. And if it's somebody else who's keeping me from getting what I want, then I may get in a war with them. You know, you're in a workplace and you think that you deserve the promotion that somebody else got ahead of you and you think that you deserve more of this, that, and the other, and then you feel like they're keeping you from experiencing what it is that you really want and now all of a sudden you've got a problem with them. And it can, it can really get ugly. And so God challenges us in a culture that pulls us down this pathway of foolishness to live a different way. He says, I don't know what the world says about sexuality. I know what the world says about money. I know what the world says about pleasure, but I want you to live different. I want you to live an uncommon faith. I don't want you to live by the faith of the world. I want you to live an uncommon faith and trust in me to be your provider for all things and to provide everything that it is you desire in your heart that is really good for you. And uh, we should live different, right? But we struggle. And one of the ways that we know that we are choosing the path of wisdom over foolishness is that the world around us will consider that path of wisdom as being foolish. I can give you a page out of my own life. Um, you know, as a young man and as a young Christian, 
you know, I, my wife and I got married when I was the rightful old age of 19, so I haven't been a believer very long. And, and you know, everybody else is like, yeah, what you guys you need to do, you need to live together. You need to, try, you need to try it out before you actually buy it, right? You know, you do that with everything else. Why would you not do that with the spouse? I said, no, man, this is not what God says. God says that I'm to be pure, sexually pure, and that I should save myself from my wife. And, and so, we, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to hold out, and we're going we're gonna to do it God's way. But why would you do that? That's foolish. That's stupid. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. And then on down our, our, our you know, as we journeyed together down our life, uh, you know, I've, I went off on a business trip, and I'm a young Christian. I'm, I'm 20 years old now, and I'm on a business trip in Providence, Rhode Island. I remember exactly where we were. I was with a whole group of men. I was at um, a, a chlorine, learning about chlorination systems for sewage and water treatment plants because I was a pipe fitter at the time. And, and so after we had dinner with all the, the guys who were there, and uh, they all decided, hey, uh, let's all let's let leave dinner. Let's just get down the street here to the local strip club. And I said, I'm out. I'm going back to the hotel. Well, what do you mean going back to the hotel? What do you, you know? So then they start ribbing me about, you know, my Christian life, my Christian faith. And why would you do that? It's a foolish thing it is. I mean, your wife is never going to know. No one will ever know. We're not going to tell you. We don't even work together. We live in different states. Why would you do that? See, these are things that you and I as believers, as followers of Christ, if we're going to choose the narrow road, sometimes when we choose the narrow road to the world, it looks like foolishness. It looks like you're, you're just being stupid. And so God has, has removed uh, in our society from the preeminent center of our existence due to the sin in our hearts, and we are living in, we are growing up in, we are engaged in a culture that by and large, we'll always choose the foolish path, the foolish wisdom over God's wisdom and the narrow path. And when you choose the narrow path over the foolish path, they're going to look at you as though you are foolish, as though this was, you know, you're just, you're jaded. There's something wrong with you. And James then comes along and he says, in James chapter four and verse eight, remember, he says, come near to God and he will come near to you. And so, um, we live in a society that, that is at a distance from God, right? And when we give our life to the Lord Jesus Christ, there just seems to be this closeness and this oneness uh, that we have knit our hearts together. But as you journey with Jesus and as you are confronted with decisions every single day of your life, you're confronted with opposing choices and you're making choices that set your feet on a path that leads to a destination. If we are not careful, we can allow the pull of culture and the pull of our sinful hearts that are so easily deceived and so easily led astray, we can start making unwise choices, and we're not even realizing that as we are making this journey with Jesus, we are, our lives are just kind of going this way. Uh, Jesus hasn't gone anywhere, but I, I'm making foolish choices, and I begin to drift away, and I don't even realize how far from God I've really become. Because I'm still going to church, I'm still carrying my Bible, I'm still praying, I'm still singing the songs, but in my heart, there's been a huge drift. And James challenge says, you know what, if you'll come near to God, God will come near to you. And oftentimes we look at a verse like that and it's like a category of the biblical statement we just believe, but we will probably, you know, we think, you know, I'm just never going to experience this in my life. There just seems to be a wedge between us. And when he says, come near to me, what God is calling us into is relational intimacy. 
He says, I want to be your father. I want to be your provider. I want to be your protector. I want to be everything. Everything is going to flow out of this relationship with me. But in our hearts, there's a drifting that begins to take place. And we are far wiser and we are far grander than God because we want what we want. And if God's not going to give it to me, then I'll find it somewhere else. And so we set in the process. So why do, we dist- why do we struggle with this relational intimacy with God? James would say, there is a, he says, there is a conflict that's going on inside of you, and that conflict is birthed out of a distorted heart. Now watch this. A heart that has built itself on its own inner desires and pleasures. I want what I want. And if I don't get it, we're going to have a problem. And so first of all, I have a problem with God because I bring it to God and God doesn't seem to be doing it for me. He doesn't seem to be coming through for me. And so then that, that conflict spills over into relationships with others, right? And then they become the object of my conflict. They, they, you ever wondered why it is that you can have such fighting and quarreling among the people that you love the most? It's because they're catching the shrapnel that's going on inside of your heart. You're warring with yourself. You're warring with God. You're quarreling. You're fighting. And now it just spills over into the relationship that you have with others. And it affects how we relate to God. It affects how we relate to others. And one of the reasons this happens is that somewhere, somehow, we make this spiritual shift in our walk with God. We make a shift in the way that we think and the way we perceive and, and really the, how we view our relationship with God. Maybe this shift took place because of something you were taught or something that somebody said to you. So here's two big shifts that we make that really kind of unfolds this whole scenario that James brings us to. And that is one is that we think, because people told us all of our life, right? God loves me. God loves me. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. And God does love you. And we see that as the essence of Christianity uh, that, that, you know, um, and then we begin to see it as the object. Well, well, God loves me. I'm the object of his love. So that means that Christianity, the essence of the Christian life is all about me, right? It's about me. It's about what I want. And it's about what I desire. And though when we come to church, then it's about my music and does my music fit my preference and it's about my life and my plans and my dreams and my portfolio and uh, my family and my dislikes and my comfort and what's best for me. And yet Christianity is not ultimately about us uh, all through the Bible. Christianity is ultimately about God. It's about Christ. It's about he being at the center of our lives and that everything revolves out of that relationship. But we put Jesus somewhere down the line, right? It's no longer about me and Jesus. It's about me and my job or me and my marriage or me and my family or me and my plans, me and my dreams. And now all of a sudden we think that God that God is like our cosmic bellboy who is there for our bidding. And so we throw up some prayers to him and say, Lord, this is what I want and this is what I expect. Although we may not say that so forthrightly, that's exactly the way we pray. And if God doesn't give us what we want, now all of a sudden we have a difficult problem with God. Well, 
God doesn't love me. God doesn't care about me. And yet, the Bible teaches us that God blesses us so that his glory, not your glory, not my glory, that his glory might be made known to all the world, to all the nations. When you go to the book of Revelation, who is sitting on the throne? Jesus. Who is gathering around the throne, worshiping and exalting and honoring him for his glory and his splendor and his power? It's the nations of the world. God did not call you into relationship. God hasn't, you say, well, you mean God, God, uh, God has an ulterior motive for blessing me, that God's blessing me with things, and, and that God wants to, because he wants to exalt himself, he wants to bring honor and glory to his own name? That seems to me to be someone who is uh, a bit prideful and a bit hypocritical. I'm telling you, that's exactly what God says. It's about him. It's about exalting his name. It's about exalting his honor and his glory. Every time we come in here to worship, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about Matt. It's not about who's leading off this stage. It is about taking the lyrics of the song and using them as an expression of our love so that we never, ever, ever exalt the music above the mission of God because God is the one who is exalted through the mission of the church of Jesus Christ. He's written a book who gives us the ending of how God receives this glory. We are not at the center of God's universe, and I am not at the center of God's universe. God is at the center of his own universe, and everything, and I mean everything, revolves around him. That is not to take away the magnitude of God's love for us, because God does love us. And he demonstrated his love for us by letting Jesus come into the world to die for us on a brutal cross in a brutal fashion in order to demonstrate that, yes, I do, in fact, love you, but the world does not center itself around you. You see, if I believe that, if I believe God's all about me, then I become self-centered, I become self-absorbed, and now I want a lot of things, and my heart has the ability to be easily deceived and easily, you know, like a drawn off course, and now I'm, I'm coming to God, and I'm saying, God, here's my laundry list. Uh, please get it done and get it done now. In fact, if God takes more than, you know, a nanosecond, we're all over him. Like, God, where are you? Now, here's the second thing that we have to keep in mind um, is that there, is, there are those who believe that there is no truth, no absolute truth, other than what I believe is true for me. See, that's, that's the culture we live in. That's the world we live in, and that's the reality of our world right now. There's no absolute truth. What is truth for you is truth for you. What's truth for me is truth for me. Uh, it doesn't matter what the Bible says. What I want is what I want, and if I don't get it, guess what I'm going to do? Just put an asterisk beside it. And just put the words, never mind. Never mind, God. I'll take care of it myself. I don't have to wait on you. There, I have, listen, I have friends. I have credit cards. I have a lot of avenues I can travel to bypass you if I need to. And that's what we often do. And that's why there is a war inside of us. And that's why we are at war with God. And that's why we are at war with one another. Our sin nature, it's about me. It's about what I want. Why would I ever lay down my life or my time for you? This is all I have. 
I would never sacrifice anything for you. My happiness is the of utmost importance. It's about my affections. And so conflict within ourselves and with God spills over into our relationships with others. I would dare say that there is somebody in your life that you do not get along with very well. It might be a boss. It may be your spouse. It may be your children. It might be a neighbor. And if, you, if I were to ask you why, why do you not get along with them? Why are you always quarreling and fighting with them? Why are you guys always arguing? You would always point me to the circumstance, right? You would always say something like, well, uh, he stole my idea at work. Or she just won't listen to me. She broke a promise that she made to me. He's never there home for the kids. And we would always point to the circumstance as though the circumstance was the source of the problem. James comes along and kind of knocks you upside the head and says, let me slap a little sense in your head. It is not the problem. The problem is what is going on inside of yourself. You want something and you can't have it. And because you can't have it, you, you view them as a roadblock. And therefore, what I got to do is either go around the roadblock or just mow right over it, right? So look what I, I have you to compare. He, verse 1, it says, compare among you with, within you. He says your temptation is to think that the reason you have a problem relationally is because of what's going on among you. Uh, he says you, you, you've got to look past that. The problem is what? The problem is what is going on within you. It's a conflict that we cannot contain, and it spills out all over other people. And that's why we get into the things where he talks about in verses 11. We slander each other, and we, we gossip about one another, and we make remarks about people. And we, listen, these are people, these are people that Jesus Christ came into the world to die for, and we are the ambassadors, we are the messengers of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but how can I take the gospel of Christ to somebody that I'm slandering and judging because I'm mad at them because they're keeping me from getting what I want? I can't, and I won't. And so the moment, watch this, the moment I have to say, as James points out, hey, this is my problem, it's really my fault. The moment I begin to take responsibility for my emotions, for my hurt, for my bad attitude, I don't get to tell my sad story anymore. And we love to tell our sad stories, don't we not? We will burn up our phone lines telling our sad stories. We lose all of our leverage. There is something within us that wants to take our little story and maintain our anger, maintain our attitude, uh, maintain our leverage against people who have hurt us or are keeping us from getting what we want. So if I take responsibility and I maintain the, and I'm, and, you know, I, I am maintaining the hurt that leads to quarreling, now uh, I'm the one who's to blame. I can't blame anybody else. It's my fault. I don't care if it's your spouse. You think your spouse is blocking you from experiencing whatever it is that you want in life. The spouse is not the problem. Your wife, your husband is not the issue. The issue is what's going on inside of you. You are looking for them to give you something that you want that God may or may not even have designed them to even give you. 
This was the source of my wife and I's problems for the first 10 years of our marriage. So my temptation is to deal with things on a very surface level because then I can point to you and say, well, this is what you said, this is what you did, and I build my case against you and tell my little sad story. And, and James says, come on, your external conflicts are conf caused by internal conflicts that you just can't contain. You know, it's not your crazy sister. It's not your, um, you know, loony mother-in-law. That's not the issue here, although she may be loony. I don't know. I don't know your mother-in-law. I had a very sweet, precious mother-in-law who never, ever said a cross word to me except for one time. One time, and that was in the last week of her life when she was dying of Alzheimer's. And she told me to shut up and stay out of her business. <laughs> it crushed me. But the good news was she couldn't even remember my name, so she didn't really know who I was. So. Here's what I know about depressed people. I've counseled enough de depressed people. I've been through enough depression on my own. You know what it comes down to? When it's all said and done, when, all, when everything's just pushed away, it's about I want something I cannot have. And it frustrates me and depresses me, and I just get all worked up inside. You know what I know about angry people? Same thing. There's things I want, I can't have, and it just seems like either God's keeping me from having it or somebody else is keeping me from having it or my boss or whoever it might be. And so... Um, If you're ever going to move past all of this, you have to come to the conclusion that the reason I'm angry, the reason I'm depressed, the reason I'm bothered by you, the reason I'm mad at you, the reason I can't get along with you, the reason I hope to never see you again is because of this war that's going on inside of me because I want something so badly, but I can't have it. Now, isn't it amazing? We see this in children all the time, right, as parents? Uh, if you work around kids, you see this all the time. I mean, um, it's easy to see it. Parents, how many times do your children fight over which seat they're going to sit in in the car, right? Hey, I want the front seat. No, I want that seat. I want the, and, and so they're just going at it. They are warring with one another because they want something, and their sibling is keeping them from experiencing what they want. If I go into a preschool room and I throw down four toys, and I mean, uh, and you got 20 kids in there, I'm going to tell you, whoever gets the four toys, they're happy, but the rest of the kids are all crying because they didn't get anything because they wanted that toy, but you have it. <sighs> Do you know what I realized as a father? My children, my kids were selfish. They really were. The issue was always they wanted their own way. When they wanted it, how they wanted it. But never once did my children in the midst of their argument say to me, Dad, I realize that the problem here is I just really want what I want and I can't get it. Never once did I hear those words. My sister's the problem. You're the problem. My mom's the problem. The person at school's the problem. The teacher's the problem. No, the teacher's not the problem. Maybe the problem is you've never turned in your homework. Maybe that's the problem. Amen. <laughs> And so your heavenly father says to us through James, come on. 
Here's where the problem resides. In fact, so much so, he uses some very strong language. He says, you will kill and you will covet to get what you want. That word kill could mean literal killing somebody, but certainly I think the intent here is that you will go to whatever extreme it is to get what you want. And it's amazing what extremes people will go to. How many children are in the human trafficking market because somebody wants something from them and they believe it's their entitled right? How many women are raped every year because a man wants something that he thinks he's entitled to and nobody's going to keep him from getting what he wants? Think of the things that maybe you have done or said to people or about people because you wanted something and you felt like they were the problem, they were the cause of you not getting what you wanted. And so you go into slandering, and slandering means that you are simply um, assassinating, literally killing, you're assassinating their character so that everyone else will feel as negative about them as you do. And he says the word covet, you covet these things. It doesn't mean that you covet something internally that nobody knows about. He's, he's speaking of a coveting that, is, that means a hotly, you hotly pursue something externally. I mean, he's just like, there's just not anything that's going to hold me back. And it's feeding this thing I call the self-monster, right? The self-monster which says, uh, well, you know, um, I, but I deserve this. I want this. I desire this. And if, if God, if you just give me this one thing, if you just give me this thing, I'll never ask for anything again. God, if you will just... And so we think, we think that whatever it is that we want, that we so desire, that we're, we are willing to go to, to whatever ends to get it, we think that once we have it, we are ultimately going to be satisfied and we will never be unsatisfied again. Please read the book of Ecclesiastes and learn from Solomon. You have a self-monster, and it is an appetite. When you feed an appetite, guess what? The appetite grows. It doesn't get satisfied and say, well, I'm all filled up now. I'll never want anything again. I try. Listen, my kids tried that with me with Happy Meals, right? Oh, Dad, I just want Happy If you just buy the Happy Meal this one time, I'll never ask for anything again. I will be... Yeah, because they want the toy. They don't want the food. They just want the toy inside. And so, you know, once they get that toy, they think, oh, this is my ultimate satisfaction. And they get it and they receive it. And in a nanosecond, they don't even know where it is anymore. We do this with cars. We do this with stuff. We do this with people. We do this with relationships. And we're always trying to fill the emptiness that's deep within us. But it only leaves us unhappy, dissatisfied, and discontent. I want you to think about perhaps somebody you squeezed and tried to make them, you tried to make them in some way bring ultimate happiness and fulfillment in your life. And you bypass God. He says you do not have because you did not ask God. And even when you did, you asked with the wrong motives. You just wanted to spend it on your own desires and your own pleasures. Sometimes you come to God with requests, and because he's a good God, you know God says no. As a parent, do you ever say no to your children? Absolutely. And it frees you to do two things. One, it frees you to say, you know what, I'm mad because I didn't get my own way. I'm depressed because I didn't get my own way. But it will free you to place yourself under 
under the authority of Jesus. And it frees me to say to my Heavenly Father, but Heavenly Father, you ultimately know what's best. There are a lot of things throughout the course of my life that I'd set my heart on and really thought God was going to give it. And at the last minute, it's like he pulled the rug out. And I walked away confused. I walked away angry. I walked away bitter. I walked away struggling in this relationship with God and saying, well, you say you're a good, good father, but I I don't know. Right now, I'm, I'm really questioning that, only to find out later why God pulled that rug and why he said no, and really he was saving me from some a lot of heartache on down the road. And you notice what James says. He says, man, when we get into this battle with God and we're getting in a battle, and he says, we are adulterous people. That means we are promise breakers. God just wants to protect. God just wants to provide. God wants to give us the best. You know, James has already said that every good and perfect gift comes from the heavenly father of lights, right? And, and so when we, when, watch this, when we say to God, I want what I want. I don't care what you say. I'm bypassing around you. He says, we are committing spiritual adultery. Wow. That's pretty harsh. And so to be an adulterer means you're a promise breaker. How many times do we make promises to God that if he just give us certain things and he says, now you've developed friendship with the world. Now you're going to allow the world to shape you and to mold you and to lead you and to guide you because you've aligned yourself with those who are on the broad road and living in foolishness rather than walking the narrow road and trusting God to put your feet on the path that leads to the best destination. This is a battle we all fight. There's not a one of us who has reached the pinnacle in which we can say, ah, preacher, you know, I could have gone home 15 minutes ago because this really doesn't apply to me. Oh, yes, it does. So how do we draw near to God? And I've only got about three minutes, so here we go. Number one, you need to relinquish control of your life. I'm just taking right out of what James says. He says, submit yourselves then to God. That word submission means to place yourself in proper rank, all right? You do not rank above the Father. Everything ranks below him. Everything ranks below my relationship with Christ. Everything in my life flows out of that relationship I have with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if there is subtle drifting going on and there is a distance and you are far from God and and now all of a sudden you're trying to make decisions, you're trying to make choices, but you're not even listening to God, you're not even hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit and you're trying to go by your gut or your instinct or what you think is right or what you think might be the logical thing to do, you can make some of the greatest regretful decisions in your life traveling that road. Jesus challenged us. He says, listen, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You will never keep your feet on the narrow road that keeps you on the path of the best destinations apart from that relationship. And so you've got to relinquish control. Stop trying to be God and live out of your new identity in Christ. Paul talks so much about our identity in Christ. Why? Because behavior flows from identity. 
I don't know where you derive your identity from. Maybe it's from people who said something to you or, or did something to you, can give you a positive identity or a negative identity. You need to submit, you need to let go, and you need to walk with Jesus out of that identity. Number two, resist the devil. Why would he tell us to resist the devil? Because, because Satan always will come, and when we're trying to make decisions, we don't know which way to, which path, Satan will always tempt us towards the, the broad road. So he always offers you a substitute, and he knows if you take the, sub, the bait of the substitute, that he creates separation because of sin between you and the Father, and he begins, watch this, that separation is always driven by fear. If I follow God, I'm afraid of what may or may not happen. I can't tell you how many people say to me, well, you know, if I really surrendered to God, if I really went all in, if I God gave, God gave God everything about who I am and what I am, I just, I'm, the, I'm afraid of what he might say or do. I'm afraid what he might take away from me. I, I'm not willing to make that plunge. And therefore... Um, we, we, we live fear-driven lives rather than faith-driven. As I shared before, when my father left our family, I had the fear of rejection. And the fear of rejection will cause you to become a people-pleaser and to keep peace at all costs. And therefore, I developed this unhealthy form of communication when it came to conflict with my wife. I just didn't communicate. I was afraid that if I communicated with her and really told her what I was thinking, uh, that she would leave me. I, I, I was driven by the fear of rejection. I was driven by the, the fear of um, not keeping peace. And so I would just shut down, afraid that uh, I, I, I just couldn't say anything. And so I was driven by this fear of rejection. And she took my silence as meaning, I don't care what you think, or I don't really don't care about you. Which fed the, her fear of disconnectedness. And so... We spent years in our marriage in the fear dance. It's a subtle way that Satan works. Um, so we, when fear, when worry, when anxiety comes into your life, it is always, the source of that is always Satan, right? He wants you to be driven by fear and worry and anxiety. God comes with peace and he comes with um, not the spirit of fear, not a spirit of timidity. God wants you to have a spirit of faith and trust in him. And number three is you want to restore now the intimacy with God. You've, you, and what he says in verses 8 and 9 about washing your hands and purifying your heart, what he's saying in essence is, listen, you need to deal seriously with your sin, right? The washing of your hands was a part of the cleansing ceremony an Old Testament priest performed before they could offer sacrifices to God. It symbolized getting rid of the defilement of sin in your life. And so what it represents here is that it's your external actions and your, the purity of your heart deals with your internal attitude. So humble yourself and call sin for what it is. It is adultery before God. And then he says, we ought to come with a sense of brokenness. We ought to come with a sense of repentance in our heart that leads us to what? That we would mourn and that we would grieve and that we would wail over our sin. Where has all of that gone? Because I don't see it anymore today. 
What I do see is this uh, notion that, well, it doesn't really matter what I, if I sin, it doesn't really matter what I do because after all, I'm under the umbrella of God's grace and that's all that matters, you know. And so we just, we, we have this spiritual drifting that's going on, but we're not acknowledging our sin. We're not acknowledging our problem and we have no brokenness in our heart and therefore there is no repentance. Listen, every time you move outside of God's design, that's called sin and sin always leads to brokenness. If you want brokenness to be restored, if you want it to be restructured, then you must come by way of the gospel, and you always come by way of the gospel through repentance and belief. And so, man, you need to deal with your sin. Stop the quarreling. Start the, listen, the fight in the quarreling is, is, is a red flag to you. It says there's something, there's something I want I'm not getting. I've had a problem. So you recover, number four, and pursue God's design. How do you flee something that, that surrounds us, this foolish wisdom that's celebrated and chased after and pursued by the world in which we live? So let me just close with this brief illustration. You know, a lot of times when people go on a diet, um, you ask them, what kind of diet are you on? What they do is they say, well, my diet consists of, and they may have a name for it, but it consists of, like, I'm not allowed to have carbs, or I'm not allowed to have this, and I'm not allowed to have that. And so they focus on, in this diet, they focus on what they are not allowed to have, right? So that's the whole focal point. I'm not allowed to have this, I'm not allowed to have that, I'm not allowed to have this. And so research has shown that people who focus on what they're not allowed to have will 10 times more likely fail at this diet because um, that's, that's, the mind begins to focus on what you're not allowed to have, and guess what? That's what you want, right? So you're just focusing on what it is you don't want all the time, and so you just finally cave and give in. Here's what we've done in the church when it comes to our walk with God is that out of the gate, I was given a list of do's and don'ts. This is what you can do, you can't do, you can't dance, you can't play cards, you can't drink, you can't do this, you know. And so then when you, when you focus on those, okay, I can't do that, I can't do that, I can't do that, I can't do that. And that was doing nothing to draw my heart to God. You want to know what draws your heart to God? It's whatever you pursue. If you pursue him, your heart will be drawn to him. Stop focusing on what you can or cannot do and just pursue the relationship and everything will flow out of that. Let's bow our heads together. You know, God's lifelong search for your soul is, is intimacy with him. Where are you in that, that walk? I mean... If nothing else, just let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart right now. Who, 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 who are you fighting with? Who are you mad at? What, what story are you telling? The problem is not them. The problem originates within you. And, and God says, somewhere down the road, in our journey together, you started drifting. And now I'm calling you to, to draw yourself back to me, to come back to me. Just like the heart of the father for the prodigal son who wanted his father's inheritance and went out and squandered it on all kinds of wild things. And he was left even more empty than before and God called him back. And he came to the father. He 
He gave his speech of repentance, and the Father just lavished his love on him. Maybe that's where you are today. You think, oh, Greg, but I've gone so far. I've done so much. It doesn't matter. I love what James says, man. He's like in verse 6, he says, man, but his grace, man, his grace. Yes, he has grace for you. It doesn't mean that I discount the seriousness of my sin, but even when I do, I have grace because I'm, if I confess it, if I deal with it, I, I own up to it. God is faithful and righteous to forgive me and cleanse me from all my unrighteousness. Why? Because of grace, because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here this morning, you don't even have a relationship with Jesus. You, don't even, you know about Jesus, you know about God, but there's just really not that intimate relationship. You've, you've never come to the cross where you embrace Jesus as your Savior and Lord of your life. The Bible says that Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again to authenticate that he was in fact God in the flesh who died for your sins and who offers you the gift of grace the forgiveness of sin, a brand new life, a brand new relationship, of closeness and intimacy. God wants you to walk in that. If you've never received Christ in your life right now here this, this morning before you leave, I'd love to pray with you either during this invitation time or after church. Man, I want you to receive Jesus. Church, I want you to walk out of here knowing that you are free and forgiven, but that yet you have You've dealt seriously with this war that's going on inside of you that's created this this separation between you and God. I want you to draw back to him and he will draw to you. So Father, thank you for your Holy Spirit now. As As he speaks, as he convicts, as he encourages, whatever it is we need, Father, meet us where we are and do a work within us before we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.
Well, thank you for being here this morning. Let's give the Lord a round of applause and praise to Him for what He's done. Amen. All right. So, listen, you have, love you, have a great, great week, and uh, we'll see you back next Sunday.